Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversation with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your moderator. You may recognize me or my voice as the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast on leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. And after four years and 200 plus episodes, we realized that it wasn't the always Matthew McConaughey's or Deepak Chopra's that were getting the most views. It was often the relatable CEOs of companies, startups, solopreneurs, foundation leaders even that had something relatable, inspiring that they wanted to share with you. So we spun off this new podcast, C-Suite Conversations, for each week. We have different conversations from all different levels of organizations related to the C-Suite. And today we have Julie Cordoa, who is the CEO of Thorn, which is a not-for-profit, our first nonprofit CEO on the podcast. And we're taping live today from Las Vegas at the Young President's Organization Conference here at MGM. So if you hear some background noise or you see a president or two try to photobomb me, well, you know we're in good company. Julie, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks so much Great for having to me. Meet you. Now, I'm going to tell our audience, today is going to be a little bit of a more sensitive conversation because Thorne, in fact, is a not-for-profit aimed at protecting children for online predators and from all the types of, you know, barrage of sexual assault that comes both digitally and also in person. So today is going to be a bit of a sensitive conversation, I think in a good way, because as a parent, as you may know, of three young boys that are eight, 10, and 12, this is a topic that of course my wife Stephanie and I think about, obsess about very much to make sure that our young boys are marshaled and shepherded through what is a really difficult world right now. So today, Julie, before I get into the mission of Thorn, I want to actually have you rewind and reorient our listeners and viewers perhaps to your own educational and professional journey and talk about how you moved from the corporate world to the not-for-profit world. Sure, thanks. Well, first, thanks for having me and thank you for the warning at the front. It is difficult sometimes to talk about these topics, so I appreciate listeners knowing what they're walking into. Um, For my background, I would say probably not well, maybe it is traditional for um, a nonprofit leader. Grew up in a small town, um, went to UCLA thinking, I'm going to, I want to run a business one day. Or actually, I loved marketing. So I really didn't ever really want to be CEO. I want to be CMO. Um, I started my career in wireless technology. So I worked at Motorola uh, back when we launched the Razor. Remember flip phones? Cool. I lived in Chicago. I know Motorola very, well. Very cool back then. Yeah. Um, and helped uh, launch a wireless startup called Helio. And then I got a phone call one day. Um, from Bobby Shriver, and he was starting something called Red. And he said, we're going to harness the power of the private sector to drive, um, raise money for AIDS medicine in Africa. And it wasn't a nonprofit. It was um, a social enterprise that was thinking about the mechanisms at play in the private sector and how you can use those to transform the world. And so I jumped ship from from where I was at at, at the startup and went and helped start the Red campaign. And over those five years, I really saw the power of combining the private sector with mission-driven work. Um, In the time I was there, I think we raised $180 million to uh, go to the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria. Um, And then I joined the founders of this, um, Ashton Kutcher and Demi Moore, and they were trying to do something similar, but in a nonprofit model. They were looking at the intersection of technology and child sex trafficking. They hadn't started yet, but they knew that this was the mission that they wanted to take on, um, but they wanted to do it um, with similar kind of private sector principles. And I really love starting things, and I knew you know technology, and I knew the private sector world. And as I learned about this issue, I had a huge learning curve, but it's an issue that you can't turn away from. Um, and so I joined them 11 years ago now. And you were the CEO of this foundation called Thorn, yes. founded by Ashton Kutcher and Demi Moore. 
and talk a bit about the nature of what the word thorn means and why you why you named the foundation that. Yeah, so when we started um, thinking about the work that we were doing, we were 11 years ago, this was actually a pretty small focus area. Not a lot of people were looking at the role technology was playing in child sexual abuse. Um, but when we dove into it and started digging further, it was it's a pretty dark topic. Um, but the thing that we all could agree on was that children are our most valuable uh, thing in this world. It is ha it is the future of our society, and we must do everything to protect them. So we thought of what protects something that is absolutely beautiful. Um, a rose is beautiful, and a thorn protects it. So we uh, renamed the organization Thorn, um, and our tagline in the early days was Digital Defenders of Children. And let's talk about the organization, and we'll actually then spend some time on the mission, because I know that'll be interesting to people yeah. watching and listening. So fully virtual organization. I asked you off camera where you're based and you said kind of nowhere, you you live somewhere, but you were virtual before the pandemic. Talk about some of the early vision Thorne had long before the pandemic to have a virtual uh, workforce. I'm not sure we had a vision. What we had was a working mom who yeah. was the first employee. And I think I had my gosh, second or third child, I need to calculate the ages, uh, within the first year of working here. And I realized that I really wanted to do this work, but I couldn't do this work if I was gonna be commuting three hours a day. Um, and I asked our founders, would it be okay if this is how we built? And they said, sure, as long as we can get the job done. And it turned out to be a competitive advantage for us because yeah. we yeah. started recruiting tech talent um, five years ago, and we couldn't compete with the salaries in San Francisco. And there's amazing talent all over this country um, and actually all over the world. And so we just started hiring people and figuring out how to make it work. Um, and then when COVID hit, I would say it was one of our advantages that we were already a fully virtual company um, and able to scale in that way. Yeah. Take that point a bit deeper because you said it very effortlessly that virtual was a competitive advantage. I think there's a lot of people like me, perhaps in my 50s that are either CEOs or I was in the C-suite myself for a decade that see it as an annoyance. We see it as, no, no, I need you here in the office, the connection interpersonal, but you actually see it a decade ago as a competitive advantage. Remind the, the leaders that are listening and watching why the virtual aspect is in fact more of an advantage than it is a hindrance. Because it's not all upside, right? There is no. great benefit from being in a, in a conference room or physically proximate. Remind everybody why it should be their ultimate competitive advantage. Sure. I mean, really it's access to talent. So, and, and I think that might be what was different. Um, again, a working mom was starting this company and I want to work. I also want to be present for my kids. And in order to do that, I needed to create this. And it turns out there's a lot of people like that, not just working moms, working parents, people who have, um, are taking care of other people in their family that they need to be at home. Um, people who maybe socially don't wanna be in an office, but they have a lot to give this world. And so why don't we tap into that? And it's not to say I, I highly value in-person time and we actually spend the money we probably would have spent on rent in bringing people together. Yeah. And I will say that over the two years of COVID, that took a hit, that took a toll on us, that we weren't able to get our company Build together. Build in-person connections and the yeah. culture that, yeah. You you gotta have those yeah. moments that spark and that yeah. sustains you as you as you work right. separately. And you have 65 employees. Well, we're up to 90 now. 90 employees yeah. across uh, beyond the US. We have, we're with a few folks in Europe and Canada. Yeah. Uh, what's it like to be the CEO? 
Yeah, it's, uh, well, when we started, it was just me. So I've been every job, uh, yeah. <laughs> grown from one to- Which is probably good and bad, right? Because you've done everybody's jobs, yeah. so yeah. Yeah, um, you know, some of those jobs I'm really grateful to hand off and some I miss, you yeah. know, the things that I loved. Um, it is really wonderful. I think the thing that I've, I've learned a ton, this, the past 10 years have been one of the biggest learning journeys in my life because growing from that idea person to the person where my only job right now is to set a vision and hire amazing people yeah. and get them on the train yeah. to go. And, um, that it takes a lot. It takes a lot of learning and changing your perspective on what you're supposed to do. Um, but it is incredible when you see it work. It is really powerful. You're in a unique position because you have done most of the jobs in the company. Yeah. And most CEOs aren't moving from being an individual contributor into being a leader of people. They've actually transitioned into management and directors and vice presidents. But you have done all the jobs. Do you ever find it um, uh, diminishing to the team when you've done that job and you're tempted to say, well, here's how I did it. And how do you prevent that, that connection you have to all of these roles with saying, no, no, these people bring their own talents and genius and creativity. How do you fight that tension? Uh, well, I had to learn. And I think maybe I learned quickly because I worked really hard to create a culture, open culture. So I, I hope my employees feel like they can tell me anything. And so there were times in the early days where my employees told me, get out of this meeting, yes. stop talking. Um, and because it's not helpful and it's not empowering to them. And so, you know, that is one of the things I've had to learn. I wasn't good at in the beginning. I would show up in meetings and say, well, actually, I think this should be that or this should change. And I had to learn um, to shift to say, this is where we want to go. I believe you have the talent to get us there. Um, and, and when you do and you see how much people take ownership of their work, that's when that spark, I tell you that I love to see, you see it. And, and when you have 100 people who all feel like they own the mission and own the work, that's when you really can have impact. What's changed about your leadership style since the pandemic? We're taping this in early May in 2022. Yeah. Uh, how are you different? Wow. Um, I'm guessing you're different as a mom, yeah. as a spouse, but also as a CEO. What's changed for you? Yeah, it's been a journey. So right when the pandemic hit, about three months before the pandemic hit, we won about $60 million to scale our organization. And you say you won it. Yes. It was a grant. It was a contest. We won the Ted Audacious Prize. So it's it's a prize that sets out what um, if we funded nonprofit missions like we fund with venture capital, how could we change the world? And I put up a proposal or, or our team put up a proposal that said, what if we could eliminate child sexual abuse from the internet? What would it look like? And, and won 63 million to scale the tools we had built. <laughs> For those off camera, we're high-fiving right now because that's not a small accomplishment. Congratulations <laughs> to your team and to you. Yeah, no, so we were, so we were about 40 people uh, before COVID hit and then we secured the funding and we were supposed to have grown rapidly. Um, we're now almost 100. Um, and so how my leadership style uh, changed during that was I had to, I, when COVID first hit, we reset our priorities. I said, our focus is first on people. 
Um, a lot of our people were, even though we were fully remote, a lot of our people were young people who lived alone, who relied on their extracurricular activities for their mental health, yes. and now they were in apartments. Shut down too. So um, I had to, I just went inward. I used to be very outward, talking, you know, promoting, fundraising. I went inward and I just focused on our people, mental health. We already have strong mental health across our company um, and making sure that everyone was taken care of and it, it not just at work, just taken care of. And then the programs that we, we serve children. So how are children doing through this? And then came, um, you know, the funding to, to remain stable. And I would say over the last two years, my focus has been all people inward. How do we grow? How do we make sure everyone um, sustains themselves through this crazy time? And I think as we emerge from COVID, um, people will remain a priority, but will shift a little bit to get back out into the world um, and share. And we're bringing actually our whole company together next week, which will be good. Congratulations. Yeah. I'm guessing when I first heard the story, I thought we well, got a head start because everybody already had their laptop in their house and they had their connections. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is that head start was also a bit neutered yeah. by the fact that their social interactions weren't in the office. Right. They were in their relationships and all those shut down, especially for those who perhaps were single or lived alone. Yeah. And you took it upon yourself as a leadership team to really care about the mental well-being of your employees beyond just their role in the company yeah. as humans and friends and colleagues. Well, that's already a part of our DNA. I mean, we work on um, child sexual abuse. And while we don't see the images and videos of abuse, we read the chat that accompanies them. We hear the stories um, where you have a high trauma work environment. And so we actually have mental health care as part of our yes. benefits for I our see. employees on a regular because basis. Because of the nature of yeah. content they're dealing with. Yeah, right. I hadn't thought about that. Let's pivot to that. Uh, this is a sensitive topic, but I'm giving you carte blanche now that you need it to talk straight about it. You wouldn't uh, be the CEO of Thorne if it wasn't a topic passionate to you. And that you couldn't talk straight about. For the millions of listeners and viewers that are parents, that are guardians, that are uncles, aunts, whatever role they're in, yeah. formal or informal, as a caretaker, a shepherd for children, tell us what's happening out there. Yeah, so we look at all types of harms at the intersection of child sexual abuse and technology. And so um, we started our work on looking at child sex trafficking in the United States, how children are bought and sold into prostitution or escort sites. And from then we've grown to look at the trade of child sexual abuse imagery. So in law, it's called child pornography. We don't call it that, it is not pornography. It is the documentation of the rape of children. And um, there are hundreds of millions of files, images and videos floating around the internet today um, that document that type of assault. And it grows because we have places where there are communities of people who can be built up around their desire to look and trade in that content. Um, and then what we're seeing as emerging crimes right now is that uh, is what we're calling kind of sextortion and grooming. So children as young as six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, have access to devices. Um, and it used to start when they could text and chat with people online, but now you have voice to text. So they're talking to strangers online who can convince them to send images of themselves or to, there was just a case that broke this morning of a, a man who posed as a, a teenager who groomed over 80 children from the ages of six to 13 to not only send images of themselves, but abuse their siblings on camera for content. And it is something, you know, there's the abuse that happens of, 
you know, behind closed doors that people document and distribute. And it's, it, it is hard to prevent that. I mean, we have tools that help law enforcement. But this type of abuse that's emerging where you've just converged the whole world online and you have more kids and more adults than ever before, we can prevent some of that. We have to think about how we're arming our parents to have safe conversations with our kids, how we're building a more resilient youth population. We can't bury our head in the sand and act like it doesn't happen. And we also can't keep our kids all the way away from devices. Even those households who say, well, I don't give my kids devices, they go to a friend's house. So how do we open up these conversations and really help our children understand, you know, what is safe, what is not, how to act online. Um, but there's, there's a broad range of, of, you know, interventions that we're working on in that sense. This is a heavy topic, but I can't think of one more vital for people to hear and embrace and understand. Uh, you chose your words very carefully. You actually said, this is not child pornography. You've called it something else, but I want you to repeat it again so people understand the deliberation of poignancy with what you're so committed at Thorn to doing. Yeah, it, I mean, what we, we, we call it child pornography. We hear this word a lot. If that's what's written in the law, and there's actually efforts to change it, um, but it is child sexual abuse material. It is the documentation of the assault or rape of a child. It's the documentation of a crime scene. Exactly. What do you want parents like me? Parents like you have small children. I have three boys. Our oldest son has a phone now against our, against our sort of, you know. Original intent. Original intent. Yeah. You know, that, that wait till eight, eighth grade. Yeah. And we waited until sixth grade. He's oldest son, so he's very responsible in terms of oldest child kind of, you know, profile. And has no access to the internet. I mean, he has the button, but he knows hit that button and the phone is gone. Yeah. So he does, so we think he doesn't access the internet. Um, he can't text. That's not true. He can text in group chat students in his class mm -hmm. and he has no social media access. Yeah. Our middle son does not have a phone. And of course our youngest son is eight, doesn't have a phone either. They have games. So they, 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 they game, I think with their friends only at class. That's what they tell me. We watch it fairly closely, but when you're upstairs and they're downstairs, you don't know exactly what's going on. What do you want the Scott Millers of the world to know about what's really happening out there? And what should we be doing to put stricter boundaries in place to protect our kids from that slippery slope yeah. that I don't even know about? Yeah, so I would say, the, and we actually created a whole program that launched last fall called Thorn for Parents. Um, the, the most important thing you can do, in the, and it, it's, easy and hard at the same time, is the minute you put a device in a child's hand, whether it's an iPad when they're two or three or four, is you start the conversation about safety and um, you create this open dialogue so that the kid, if they encounter something that they don't understand or feel comfortable with, they will come to you. Because the point that harm starts is when they don't ask for help or they are worried they're gonna get in trouble. They try to figure it out themselves. Try to figure it out yeah. themselves. Nav so, navigate this uncertain thing. Right, so we have scripts for parents to mm -hmm. actually conversation starters. So yeah. they can sit down with their child at six and we have different ones at eight and how to start that conversation. Stop there right now and tell me the web address parents go to to find this resource. You can get all of it at thorn.org. Thorn.org. Mm -hmm. Because as a parent of young boys, I've had the talk with my two oldest. Yeah. We went to a restaurant, believe it or not, and we had the talk about, you know, the talk. Yeah. And we talked all about it. The oldest one handled it really well. The middle one laughed as laughed the entire. But but we had the talk, not yet with the youngest one. Yeah, he's eight. Uh, this is a different kind of talk. This is a different and kind of talk. We think it needs to happen that I've not had. Yeah, 
Probably because not because I lack the courage. I don't have the tools and the the language. But when I go to thorn.org, I'm going to find some scripts yeah. that I can sit down with my three boys and walk them through if this happens or when you see that, here's how you deal with it. Right. Or just ask them. Be curious about their online lives. What what are you playing? Show me your friends list. Who Who is this? Who's the person that you're chatting with the most? What would happen if someone said something to you yeah. that you didn't feel comfortable with? Yeah. You know you could always come to dad, right? You know that you're not going to get in trouble. I, I, I want you to know that I'm always going to be here. Yeah. You're, you're not a mental health therapist. You're not a psychiatrist. You're not an expert in human behavior. But how many years? 11? 11. 11 years dedicated to this, yeah. helping solve this horror. What signs should parents or caretakers be looking at when we start to, we don't know, but are there any behaviors or patterns or things that we should be aware of to say, hey, maybe this is going on? Yeah, I mean, I think if your child becomes more withdrawn, uh, if they show signs of anxiety, and it might not just be, you know, uh, sexual abuse online, there might be bullying or other forms of harm happening online. Um, If they're using their device in secret, like behind a closed door, or you notice it, you know, going into a bathroom with the door shut. Um, If there are, you know, they're withdrawing from their friends, perhaps. So, but also there are times when you don't see any of those signs and something is happening because they think their online life is one thing and their offline life is another. Yes. So that open line of communication is, is most important. Is the majority of this grooming and entree happening in devices like in phones versus gaming or laptops or PC? Talk about the actual hardware of it. Uh, it it's happening anywhere. So we uh, we have a couple kind of mantras inside. We we work with law enforcement, we work with tech companies, and now we're working with parents as well. With tech companies, we say any company with an upload button needs to be uh, proactively looking for child sexual abuse, yeah. and we help them do that. With parents, it is any connected device. So gaming is a huge place um, for harms because the connected games these days, and you don't, it's anonymous. So you often don't know who the people right. are that you're chatting with. Right. So a lot of times what happens and how these harms often start is someone will meet someone in a group environment. So if there's these um, live streaming platforms where kids can live stream their lives and, and it's public and people chat about what they're live streaming, someone, a predator may meet that child, say, you look great. That's you know, nice cartwheel. Um, that looks fun. Hey, come chat with me over here and move the child into a private one-on-one, very deliberate. And once they get that child off of this public platform, a gaming platform, a live streaming platform onto WhatsApp or signal or, uh, just text messaging, then the abuse can start and no one can see it. Um, and so you have it is anywhere that that child can be connected. And, you know, there are things you can do within those platforms, the privacy settings and things like that, but also those can change. It happened to me. We had all these privacy settings and my daughter changed one of them and something went public and good thing I caught it. But I think it, it ha- being on top of it, having that open line of communication. Yeah. I mean, one solution is I'm sure there's parents thinking, well, all this could be solved if you just took all these technologies away from your children. They don't need them. Had them do this or that. And I'm guessing that's a solution for some parents. It's probably really unrealistic in a new world. I wasn't raised with a mobile phone either. Were you? Yeah. Well, you're much younger than I am. Maybe you were. I wasn't. Um, I remember my first car phone. Like I saw a phone in a car. I got like, mine on the was, way to college like in case Buck I Rogers. broke down on the yeah, way. Yeah, there yeah. you go. There you go. Uh, but the fact of the matter is the new generation's lives are yeah. in, in, so seamlessly integrated with these tools. 
Uh, I think I think each family has their own solution. Personally, I, I'm not of the mindset of take it all away um, because of exactly that. These kids are growing up in a very different world than we grew up in. Um, and so our mantra is how do you empower them? I mean, sometimes I feel bad that we're saying, how do you build a more resilient youth population because we're putting onus on them. But I don't really believe there's any other way um, to do it. And these kids actually get a lot of benefit from technology too. I know I work on one of the harms, but it is a small part of their connected life. And so I don't want to take away the good that can come with connectivity. What I want to do is hold tech companies accountable, make them do their job to create safe environments, help law enforcement find the bad guys, and then help these kids know how to navigate this world. I'm also really hopeful that the next generation of parents will have grown up online. Yeah, right. They the may, more savvy. They may be yeah. a little bit more um, proactive in how to help coach that next generation of children as they grow up online. So that's my hope coming out. And would you give a shout out to any particular company that's doing a good job of helping you, whether it's you know, a search engine or a, a, a retail retailer online? Are are you encouraged about the the proactivity, the collaboration, the will of, of these organizations, whether it's a gaming organization or their apps or you know, it, it Amazon? Varies. Or... It varies. So we actually, um, again, our, our goal is that every company with an upload button does this work proactively. And we actually build products to help companies do that. Um, and I think there are many companies that are proactive and they're trying. It's a difficult space. I some days I'm really excited by the companies that sign up and say yes, and other days I'm I'm pretty disappointed in the will. I think one of the 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 most disappointing things we're seeing right now is Facebook um, was one of the first companies to implement technology to detect child sexual abuse material at scale, and they do. They they are currently one of the the top reporters to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. I think they well just by sheer volume of sheer members volume, they should right sheer volume. That's not an accolade or a. It's just, an accolade yeah. in the sense that they were um, one of the first companies to do it at scale. They they do it pretty aggressively. Um, but, you know, Facebook Messenger is currently one of the platforms that identifies the bulk of child sexual abuse material today, not because it's a bad platform. Every platform with, with an upload button has abuse on it. It's because they look for it, which is great. They um, have committed to encrypting that platform, which means as soon as they do that, we won't be able to find child sexual abuse material anymore. Um, so I think that's a poor business decision when you have a messaging platform in the middle of a social network with a lot of children on it. Um, I also know that as they're moving to the metaverse, that what we have seen to date is that they are not prioritizing child safety in the development of the next generation of connectivity. They are prioritizing speed to market, which I understand from a business perspective. Um, but we will repeat with the metaverse what we have done with Web 2.0 um, if we don't integrate child safety from the very beginning. Yeah, yeah. not as repeat, but probably exacerbate. 100%. Yeah. Uh, why are Ashton Kutcher and Demi Moore so passionate about this topic? Why did the foundation start? So they started this work. Um, they had seen a documentary about uh, child sex trafficking that was happening in Southeast Asia, and it was something that deeply touched them. And as they started on their philanthropic journey, they um, started talking to a lot of people, learning about the issue and realizing that it was happening here in the United States yeah. as well. Um, and that's where this work started. We, we started working on child sex trafficking in the U.S. and then have grown um, from there.
Ashton serves as the chairman of the board. Demi is uh, emeritus chairman as well. Uh, people who are interested to help, to get involved, they can go to thorn.org, obviously, but uh, what kind of call to action would you give to business leaders? Any company has an upload button to quote you multiple times. What kind of call to action would you like our listeners and viewers to get motivated to do next? Yeah, I mean, I think if this is, um, if the listener is a business leader in tech, um, build with purpose, uh, not with abandon. Uh, know what are your principles and if you have an upload button, um, and I really do mean it. I'm talking about Nextdoor, you know, the platform, I'm talking about Slack, on spot, anything with an upload button, there will be abuse. Don't ignore it. Be proactive and create a safe space for your users. Um, and if you're a parent, um, start to have these conversations. We have resources for parents to start to have the conversations. Um, and if you want to learn more, you can go to thorn.org and you can learn about um, how you can pressure the companies that you love to do the right thing, how you can educate yourself about the policies that are um, currently uh, kind of being negotiated in Europe and the U.S. that will affect this work going forward. Great conversation today, different than most of our other interviews, but no less important. Your passion for this work is palpable, it's contagious. I'm gonna go to thorn.org and download some of the scripts and narratives for my wife and I. I wanna hear how it goes. I will because it's a conversation that I think I'm, I think I'm probably aware of, but listening to you, I'm, I'm visualizing my sons at this table and at that TV and downstairs and upstairs. And we've had some instances with iPads on previous, you know, a time with our boys that um, were horrifying, mm-hmm. accidental, yeah. on you know, and uh, that's kind of viscerally seared in my wife's brain yeah. and mine as well too. But I think most parents have had those experiences. Yeah, yeah. So how do we prepare for that? Yeah, and make sure it doesn't happen again as yeah. well too. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Thank great, you so great much for having me. Thanks for joining us today at the YPO conference yeah. here in Las Vegas. Say hi to my good friend Ashley. Ashley <laughs> and to me. Not hardly. And we'll see you back here next week for. A great conversation on C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller.